0: To you, our Father, we come because we, uh, we love you as not only our Savior and Lord, but as King of the universe, the one who has given to us eternal life, the one who has given to us uh, joy and peace, and all of those things that come only from God. Even in the midst of our trials and tribulation, we know that you are ever with us, and for that we are thankful. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be powerfully at work in our hearts today. We have come here for fellowship, for study, for prayer. And in it all, Lord, we desire that our ultimate fellowship will be with you. And I thank you that we have one another in which to share. And now, Father, I ask that you will guide our study this morning and that your Spirit will be at work uh, in every class, in every heart, throughout this complex this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday... We were talking about the sacrifices, and we'll be talking a little bit more about, well, quite a bit more. Chapter 29 continues with this theme of um, the sacrifices which were made. And I was uh, highlighting before that these sacrifices, the, the slaying of the animals in and of themselves, as we know from New Testament teaching, uh, was of no value if the heart of the individual was not set towards God, if, if it wasn't done out of obedience, if it wasn't done out of a commitment to, to serve the Lord, uh, if, if it was just a perfunctory ritual, it had no meaning. And after class last time, Dr. Walmart came up and, and shared a good thought concerning this relative to Jesus with me, and I thought maybe I'd just let him say that to you more clearly than I could if I tried to reinterpret it.
1: On the 10th chapter of Hebrews, what I mentioned to Don was that the argument that the author is developing here is that it was because of Jesus' absolute willingness to give himself up to the Father in behalf of us that validated his sacrifice. And the two verses, there's much more to this, but the two verses, he's piggybacking on a passage from Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8 which reads it's a quote from the Old Testament sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you had no pleasure then I said behold I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will O God this is uh, the author putting on the lips of Jesus this Old Testament Psalm is being fulfilled in him then he goes on to say behold I have come to do your will O God He takes away the first, that is the sacrificial system, which may or may not involve an act of the will. It may, as Don's pointed out, but also it may not. But in establishing the second, he says, by that will, the will of God, as reflected in Jesus' perfect willingness to obey his Father and sacrifice himself on behalf of us, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus as the ultimate supreme sacrifice.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I I think sometimes we forget how much the will of Jesus and the will of God were crucial to this whole thing, and I think it just bears out from throughout all of Scripture that unless the person is committed fully within his or her heart to, to whatever is the requirement, there is no point in it, there's no point in it. It just becomes a ritual with no meaning. And unfortunately, that's what the history has been in so much of the Church. Recently, in my classes at the college, we've been talking about the Byzantine Empire. And the Byzantine Empire, of course, was brought into existence out of the old Roman Empire, and Christianity played a role in all of this. But the Church that was born in the Byzantine Empire became known as the Orthodox Church. We call it sometimes a Greek Orthodox. It has many manifestations. But although it is currently undergoing some revival, from what I understand, it it became very much a ritual religion that went through all of these perfunctory steps, and and people became a part of this, and they thought they were part of the kingdom of God simply because they took part in the ritual. And when you look at their lives and how they acted and what they thought, you think, how does this fit with Christianity? How does this fit with the teaching of Christ? It's like when we, I mean, both the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church were directly involved in a period of time in Western history known as the Crusades. Beginning in 1095, when these armored knights came from the West in the name of Jesus to slaughter everybody who stood in the way of uh, pilgrims coming to the Holy Land. And you go a very long ways in Scripture to find where God teaches that followers in Christ should march forth literally to war to cut down the infidel. The, the cross of Christ was to be proclaimed verbally, and that was the sword, was the word of God, not the steel sword, which, of course, is the implement by which Islam has been spread throughout history, is the steel sword. You know, accept Muhammad or get your head cut off, you know, type thing. And uh, so, uh, you know, it keeps coming down to this grass root concept that it's the heart attitude towards God that is more important than any of these other details so as we continue in looking at chapter 29 uh, i trust that this will 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 become a part of our understanding let's look at numbers 29 and i like to read the first 11 verses uh, to begin with numbers 29 now in the seventh month on the first day of the month you shall have also have a holy convocation You shall do no laborious work. It will be to you a day for blowing trumpets. And you shall offer a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord, one bull, one ram, and seven male lambs, one year old without defect. Also their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. And offer one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. Besides the burnt offering of the new moon and its grain offering and the continual burnt offering and its grain offering and their libations according to their ordinance for the soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. Then on the tenth day of the seventh month you shall, make, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall humble yourselves, you shall do, not do any work. And you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as soothing aroma, one bull, one ram, seven lambs, one year old, having them without defect, and their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, one male goat for a sin offering besides the sin offering of atonement and the continual burnt offering and its grain offering and their libation. We're talking about the seventh month. The seventh month of the ceremonial year, which was the month Tishri. And it is the busiest month of all for the Hebrew nation in terms of festivals. First of all, we have, as we read in this chapter, the festival of trumpets. Then that is followed a few days later by the Day of Atonement. And then lastly, that same month, the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Trumpets took place on the first day of the month of Tishri, the sacrifices therefore being, of course, first of all, the regular daily sacrifices, the lamb in the morning, the lamb in the evening. But on top of that were added the monthly New Moon offerings. So those are added on top of the daily sacrifices. And then on top of that, for this particular festival, you have one bull, one ram, seven lambs, and a male goat. So when you add it all together, you've got 23 animals that must be sacrificed on this particular day, the Feast of Trumpets. Later on, as the civil calendar will develop, Israel will have a ceremonial calendar and a civil calendar running side by side. As this happens, Tishri will become the first month of the civil year. When that takes place, the Feast of Trumpets will become the New Year's festival. We know it or hear of it and look at it on your calendar. It's Rosh Hashanah, which basically means the beginning of the year. What is interesting about this is this change is not mentioned in Scripture. This change is something that takes place subsequent to Scripture, apparently subsequent to Jesus even in terms of time. They, they have not been able, scholars have not been able to nail down the actual time when Rosh Hashanah be, is, is instituted and becomes the first day of the year, the, the New Year's Festival, when it used to be, of course, the first day of the seventh month, the introducing the month of Yom Kippur. The blowing of trumpets here is the shofar, the ram's horn that would be blown. And this was to gather the people for holy convocation. The purpose of this festival seems to be to inaugurate the month in which the great and high holy day of all Hebrew worship occurs, and that is Yom Kippur. To introduce this month and to set people's hearts on the tone of preparation for this high holy day. Harvest is basically over by this particular time, and it was... An opportunity for them to begin to focus their thoughts on the sustainer, the giver and sustainer of both physical and spiritual life. Ten days later, on the 10th of Tishri, then came this very, very important day known as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We will not go into the details of that again because we have already done that when we were looking at Leviticus chapter 16 a, a while back. and looked at the details of the celebration. But I I would like to remind us of the fact that unlike most of these other festivals we read about, the Yom Kippur was not a day of feasting. It was a day of fasting. It was not a day of celebration. It was a day of deep contemplation. It was a day of considering one's Life before God and how one stood and how one needed to deal with his or her sin. The offerings for this day consisted of, of course, the regular daily sacrifices. This went on, whether it was Yom Kippur or whatever day it was out of the year. And then on top of those, we're told in the Scripture in Leviticus that there would be one bull, one ram, seven lambs, and one goat. These would be offered. On this particular day, and then on, in addition to that, there would be one ram uh, there would be one ram and one bull offered for the priests, and then there would be one ram and two goats offered for the nation, one of those goats being the scapegoat, this would be the offering that would be offered on the day of atonement and Yom Kippur was to be celebrated annually, it was to be the day of of you know reviewing one's life and and standing before god in a in 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 total humility and and accepting of his grace not that one didn't need to do this every day of the life other lives but this was a special day when all of this was brought together this was to be carried out year after year after year until the day of atonement came and that of course was the day when christ the messiah died on Calvary. That would be the Day of Atonement. And subsequent to that, this day needed not to be worshipped or practiced anymore in the sense that it was before. In Hebrews 10, as Dr. Walmark was referring to that particular passage this morning, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 12, we read that every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin, but Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. This is the true Yom Kippur. This was the Day of Atonement, when Jesus said, it is finished. Everything that Yom Kippur had been instituted to, to create within Israel was culminated in that hour, in that moment. The sad, tragic aspect of it was, of course, most of Israel had no idea that Jesus was that ultimate sacrificial lamb. It, it, was, it was just, you know, he, he, was a, he was a rebel, he was a radical, he was, he was anything but Messiah for the vast majority of the people. And that, of course, is, is the great tragedy of all time, but for us it's the great joy that God has brought us into understanding that particular truth. So as we as we look at these sacrifices and, and uh, these horrendous offerings, it seems like after a while, <coughs> because we're going on to the festival of tabernacles and it gets worse in terms of the number of animals uh, being offered, we can only, of course, rejoice that Christ brought it all together and that his blood covered it all. And that the blood of goats and rams and bulls and lambs and all of this no longer needs to be offered because his blood is sufficient. If If we go on in this chapter 29 beginning at verse 12. Then on the fifteenth day of the seventh month you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work and you shall observe a feast to the Lord for seven days. And you shall present a burnt offering an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, 13 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, one year old, which are without defect, and their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the 13 bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, a tenth for each of the 14 lambs, and the one male goat for sin offering, besides the continual burnt offering, its grain offering and its libation. Well, we come to the last main festival to occur in the nation of Israel uh, in the ceremonial year. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles it sometimes was called, uh, began just five days after Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was on the 10th. You have, you have the Feast of Trumpets on the 1st. You have Yom Kippur on the 10th. And now from the 15th to the 22nd, you have the Festival of Booths. The Israelites were instructed to make temporary shelters. This is why it's called the Feast of Booths. They were instructed to make temporary shelters in which they would live for the length of the Festival of Booths. Most of them would, if they lived in Jerusalem or they were not amongst the males who had to go to uh, the tabernacle, they would just make this on the roof of their house and go up and live in this temporary shelter on the roof of their house through this particular period of time. And why was this? Why did God instruct them to make temporary shelters in which they were to live for these eight days? Well, if you go back to Leviticus 23, one won't do that. But in Leviticus 23, it tells us that God said, You do this to commemorate the 40 years that you were in the exodus in the wilderness wandering when you lived in temporary shelters. You're not to forget that because this was the hour of your birth from Egypt to the land of Canaan. And you will remember this and you will commemorate it every year with this particular festival. And you can imagine what kind of a, of a great example this would be to the children, you know, a, a real visual aid. Why are we living up here on the roof? I want to go down in my bedroom. I don't want to sit up here under these branches of a tree on the roof of the house and lay on the floor. This is no fun. <laughs> It's to remind you of the difficulties through which our parents went as they were in the wilderness for 40 years, to bring us to this wonderful land, this promised land that God has given to us. If I were a diehard Calvinist right now, I would say, this is supposed to represent that six months to a year that you're supposed to be anguished in your soul before you finally came to birth in Jesus Christ. You know from conviction of sin to birth in Christ. Uh, the old Calvinist way you had to just be in this constant turmoil for months on end before you can actually be birthed into the kingdom. You can't just like that, you know, it's too simple. And, and you know, that this was the could be compared to it. the 40 years is that, that hard birthing period for Israel. Well, maybe that's too much of a uh, drawing on something. But anyway, the feast lasted eight days. From the 15th to the 22nd of Tishri, this festival <coughs> required the greatest number of animals to be sacrificed of any of the festivals throughout the year. If you go through this passage, what you discover is that there will be 71 bulls sacrificed. There will be 15 rams, 105 lambs and 8 goats all in addition to the daily morning and evening lamb, which would be another 16. You add it all up, I didn't bother to do that, but you've got well over, probably close to around 200 animals here you know, that are being sacrificed during this, this eight-day period of time. Now, it's interesting. Scholars do not really know why. The addition is as it is as you go through the next days. I'm not going to read through all of these other verses that follow from 17 on because it's very repetitive. It simply says that on the first day of Tishri, the um, sacrifice would be made. Then on day 2, from verse 17 through verse 34 of this chapter, deals with days 2 through 7 of the festival. On the first day, they were supposed to offer 13 bulls, 2 rams, 14 lambs, and 1 goat. On days two through seven, they were supposed to sacrifice one bull less each day. So on the next day be twelve, then eleven, then ten, then until you reach the last day of Tishri, and you would uh, uh, sacrifice seven bulls on that last day of the sacrifice. But the lambs, the rams, and the goats remained the same. Same number offered every time. Just the bulls being reduced by one Five. each time. I have yet to find a scholar who knows why that's true. Uh, It simply was ordained of God to be the way it was to be. I mean, you know, you could try reading into all of this all kinds of numbers, and there are people who go into numbers, and I don't mean the book, but I mean the idea of numerology. And I, I suppose there is a measure in which there's something valid in this, but sometimes it gets pretty far out, as far as I'm concerned, to try to attach numbers to everything that's going on here. This was ordained by God. He simply ordained this to be. And this was what was to happen. And the impact overall in the minds of the people, of course, was to be that God is the one who has set up the, the uh, program by which we will come to, to know Him, to be cleansed by Him. And it's our job from our hearts to love Him and to carry out this uh, ritual uh, because we love Him and because we're trusting in His grace to save us from our sin. The very big problem is, though, as I said a little bit before, is that we as humans have a great tendency to click into ritual, just kind of click into ritual, and do things automatically. You know, we just do this same thing all the time, with, and we become mindless in what we do. Uh, maybe you don't, but I do sometimes. And, and so I could understand where, you know, the emphasis needs to be that The the horrendous shedding of blood would be to cause the people to be aware of the horrendousness of their sin, and to keep them cognizant of the fact that their heart needs to be right before the Lord in the midst of all of this ritual. Towards the end of his ministry, uh, Jesus Christ attended the Festival of Booths in Jerusalem, and he used this opportunity to teach in the temple and to stir up a hornet's nest. Not that he was wont to do that, but uh, it happened on many occasions, as you well know. At the end of the festival at, that occurred in that particular year, he gave his famous living water message. Let me just read that uh, from John chapter 7. John 7, begin, beginning at verse 37. Now on the last, he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But as he spoke of the, but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words were saying, certainly this is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. To me, one of the amazing things is... There's more than one statement in Scripture like this particular uh, passage where they said, but, but doesn't Scripture say that He came from the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, not from Galilee? You know, Jesus knows all things. Jesus knows what people are thinking before they even say it. So why didn't He say, by the way, folks, I was born in Bethlehem, you know? Thinking, why don't you say that, Jesus? <laughs> but But, you know, Jesus wasn't here to make all kinds of protestation about the validity of what he had to say. His validation came in the life which he lived. And in the fact that the message he gave was the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, and the hearts that were prepared would hear and would receive. And the others, even if Jesus were to say, hey, by the way, I was born in Galilee, I mean, born in Bethlehem, they, they wouldn't believe anyway. You know, their hearts were hardened. That they were not willing to, to listen no matter what was said. But in this particular passage, we find Jesus is talking about living water, springing up from wind within, and, he, and it says there that this will be the Spirit which will become resident in those that believe in Jesus. The, the interesting part about this is that the Scripture in the Old Testament nowhere makes any statement about a water libation being poured out in the festival of Tabernacles. It doesn't say. It talks about wine and, and grain and oil and, and the animals, but it talks nothing about a water libation, which Jesus is making reference to here. But what is interesting is that Josephus does. Josephus, in his Ant- Antiquities, says that during the last day of the Festival of Tabernacles, the people, the, they would go, the priests would go to the Pool of Siloam, and they would dip some water, and they would pour it out before Yahweh as a, as a, sacrifice to Him. And so it was probably, that was the reason that Jesus used this context, therefore, for His living water message. Because as you know, Jesus always took whatever was, I shouldn't say always, but often took whatever was at hand to be illustrative of, of a spiritual message that He was to give to the people. And so that seems to be the context of this particular message which He gave. Back in Numbers 29, Verses 35 through 38 of that particular passage describe the offering of the last day of the festival. Like the first day, it was to be a day of rest, a, a day of holy convocation in which they were to do no laborious work. The offerings were much reduced now, however, from what they had been for the previous days of the festival. From days two through seven, the, the numbers were large, but suddenly now days one through seven. But on the eighth day, the offering drops back to being just that, as was given on the day of the Feast of Trumpets, that is, a bull, a ram, seven lambs, and a goat. And in the case of all the others, you'll always have to be reminded of the fact that included with all of these animals was the offering of grain and oil and wine. Now, as we read that, you could almost think that God is requiring of these people a profligate use of essential elements of human sustenance. But we need to be reminded that all of this grain and all of this oil and all of this wine and all of these animals weren't put on the altar and burnt to smithereens. A certain portion was. But the bulk of it was turned over to the priests and their families. And so this sacrificial meat and, and this grain and this wine and this oil was actually serving to feed the priestly families. And so God in his great knowledge, of course, uh, worked this out so that it would um, serve a dual function. Verses 39 and 40, we read You shall present these to the Lord at your appointed times, besides your votive offerings and your free will offerings, for your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, and for your libations and for your peace offerings. And Moses spoke to the sons of Israel in accordance with all that the Lord had commanded Moses. These celebrations, which are summed up for us here in these two or three chapters in Numbers, have been initiated before this hour that they're described. Uh, details have been given in other passages. We've read about other uh, institutions of this back in Exodus and in Leviticus. So the question is, why, why is this repeated here? Well, one of the things you discover if you compare these Numbers passages back to Leviticus and back to uh, Exodus is that these Numbers passages tell you how many sacrifices were made. The others generally do not. This outlines exactly how many animals was to be sacrificed in each festival. It seems that God did this at this particular time. Remember, Moses is about to depart the scene. God has already told him, now I'm going to have you go up into the mountains of Abarim, and there you're going to look out over the whole land, and then you're going to die. This has already been told him. So he is giving this at the end of his life. And so there seems to be several reasons why God is repetitive of these festivals and feasts. First of all, the power is about to be transferred. The mantle of authority is to be taken from Moses and put upon Joshua. It is very important for the people of Israel to become aware of the fact that what was proclaimed before, what was spoken by God through Moses from Sinai and what was recorded in Exodus Leviticus is not the law of Moses only. It's the law of God through Moses. And that's a very important distinction because if it's viewed as the law of Moses, then Moses is put on a pedestal, and anybody who else who comes behind him is going to be really second class. And that person isn't going to be able to enforce anything because, well, the law of Moses says. It's the law of God. It's not the law of Moses. Moses may have been the mouthpiece, but it was the law of God. And these celebrations are to be carried out in perpetuity. They weren't just to be done while Moses was alive. These were to be done forever and ever, as you know, at least until Messiah came. Secondly, the people were on the verge of entering the Promised Land. They are camped in the plain of Moab. They can look across the river, and in the distance, they can see the walls of Jericho. They are prepared. They're, they're at the launching point to go into the land. And they were to understand that these celebrations were to become a regular part of their lives once they had occupied the land. It would provide the framework for the cycle of life. You are to be in the land, and this is how you're to live year after year after year. And these festivals are the, 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 um, you know, the pegs that you drive down through your life. And as they're they're repeated, this gives a, a continuity to your faith and continuity from generation to generation. As your fathers worship, so you shall worship. God is immutable. We are to follow in worship in the way that He has directed. He does not change. Then thirdly, the reiteration of these festivals at this point of embarkation where god is saying all right you're about to go in the land and this is what i want you to do this was encouraging to the people because it meant that we really are going to go into the land i mean god he wouldn't be going to all of this trouble of explaining all of this to us and commanding us to do this if he wasn't really going to take us into the land so it encouraged their faith to believe that they really will Uh, conquer the land and begin to live a normal life, whatever that is, Uh, you know. For us, we can say, what's a normal life, you know. But you go back to these old agricultural societies and you could get into a pretty good routine of daily and yearly life. What's interesting about verse 39 of this passage we just read (coughs) is it makes clear that these offerings. Of these different festivals the morning and the evening one the new moon and then all the festival offerings were to be made irrespective of any free will or votive offerings that were to be made they couldn't say oh by the way i'm making this free will offering so that you know that replaces my need to participate in you know this particular festival offering or something like that no If a person came along and his heart is brimming with love for God, and so he wants to make a sacrifice, or he's got some special need he wants to bring before God, so he makes a special sacrifice, or if he makes a vow, a votive offering, he makes a vow and and wants to seal it with an offering, that's all well and good. But it cannot be counted towards any of the regular sacrifices. It was to be done in addition to... Can I stretch that? (laughs) To say that, in our case, for example, if we have committed ourselves to a basic giving of ourselves to God, that there may be a op- uh, reason for which we want to go beyond that at uncertain occasions, and give more of ourselves or whatever that may entail—money, time, strength—I I think so. I think we can make that parallel. I think that you and I can be very grateful that we are not under the burden of the regimentation of the sacrificial system. That we don't have to think about festival of tabernacles is coming up. I got to get some branches, and I got to build a booth on the roof of my house, and I got to participate in all of these animals dying. But I think as we're freed from this regimentation, we need to be very, very careful that we don't abuse our freedom and become so free-wheeling that we neglect the disciplines of the godly life, and that is a great temptation. God built in this regimen for these people so that they would not forget from whom all blessings flow. They would not forget the one to whom they owed everything. But, you know, you and I, in talking about grace being free and salvation being, you know, made once and for all, can, can get to the place where we just kind of wing it spiritually. I, I think that's one of the great temptations of, of the Christian life. We, we neglect the fact that our hearts need to be trained so that they understand the heart of God. That's really what the Bible's all about, in helping us understand the heart of God. What is God really like and what are His purposes? in this world and in us. And learning to put that as our guiding star, if you will, for how we live our lives. I think it's very important that we don't become tempted to become as a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter and squander our inheritance in Christ by just kind of a freewheeling lifestyle. Oh, well, uh, I mean, this, this, this happens, I think, all the time. While well, I'm in Christ, therefore, it doesn't matter if I don't exactly walk according to the teaching of the Word. God's very forgiving. And so, you know, if I kind of give in to my lust here and give in to my desires there and kind of go off on a rabbit trail for a couple of years, you know, I'll come back and it'll be okay. Or this whole idea that Sunday is really no different from any other day as far as work and play is concerned. And if I'm at church, I'm at church. And if I'm on the lake, I'm on the lake. I mean, God doesn't care. Well, I I don't really think that's true, because probably the reason is that your heart is not set where it ought to be. I'm not saying that being inside a building on Sunday morning makes one more holy than being out on a lake. But I I think the attitude which says it doesn't matter is is an attitude that's based in a false understanding of the truth. I I don't know about you, and and maybe it's just habit. But uh, if I do, if, if for some reason something happens that I am not in church on Sunday morning, I, I feel like something's really amiss here. You know, something's screwed up. This can't be right. So when we travel, we generally try to make to a, a church on Sunday morning. Hopefully in Alliance Church, we try to find one. Not that that makes the big difference. I'm not saying that. <laughs> yeah, if we don't go to Alliance Church, we haven't really gone to church. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> But we, we do try to, to be in the Lord's house because it just feels strange otherwise. And I hope that's not just because we've gotten in such a routine that, you know, we can't break it. But it's because our hearts are training uh, in the way God wants us um, mm-hmm. to think and to act. Faithfulness as God's servant, that his kingdom will be fulfilled through us, is, is really what we're here for. <laughs> he didn't save us just to have a, a you know, a Lollapalooza of a life here. He, he saved us to serve him. What's a song? Save to serve? I I think there's more truth in that than sometimes we, maybe that's one of the reasons why we shouldn't neglect uh, some of the hymns. Uh, There's some truth in there that sometimes we miss if we we, um, neglect some of the great hymns of the faith. Chapter 30 of uh, the book of Numbers, we are not going to read, but chapter 30 deals with the proclamation of vows which are promises or pledges to do something or not to do something, to abstain from something. You may remember uh, a while back when we were dealing with Numbers chapter 6, we talked about the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was one of many types of vows which could be made. The Nazarite vow is outlined. Other vows are, are just implied and are not described in Scripture. Vows might be made for a variety of reasons. But the primary reason seems to be to serve as a demonstration of love for God and fidelity to Him. Most people would make a vow. I will abstain from this, O Lord, for this period of time, because I want you to know how much I love you. I suppose that's ultimately the theory originally behind Lent. You know, you abstain from something, I won't eat peas. <laughs> Can't stand them anyway. Uh, for, uh, for Lent, because because of the great sacrifice Jesus made for us. You know, the real reason behind a vow should be that God would be glorified somehow in our lives and and that we want Him to know that we're we're here to serve Him. I I shouldn't put that in the current context because of what I'm going to say, but that certainly was in the minds of those who were making such vows. The purpose of the teaching in chapter 30 seems to be that for whatever reason the vow was made, the fulfillment of that vow has to be taken seriously. It isn't the technique of making the vow. It isn't even that the vow is made that the scripture here was given. It was given that if the vow is made, the vow must be fulfilled. God is the author of truth therefore he will not tolerate cheap or flippant promises because they are in effect a lie if I promise to do something I, I swear to God I'm going to do this and then I don't do it I have become a liar and you know you and I know who is the author of all lies God's people are supposed to be sincere and honest from the heart out not characterized by duplicity, because that's the hallmark of the world. I mean, don't we live in a world that's filled with duplicity? And everybody's out stabbing the other person in the back. This is the way of the world. We are not to be that way as God's people. Now, in the early times we're talking about, God allowed vows and oaths to be made, as long as they were not false. But He did not require them. And I think that's an important point. We read from Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it will be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be a sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. The emphasis is, if you say it, do it, but you're not required to say it in the sense of a vow or an oath. This becomes quite clear to us as Jesus comes along and preaches his message, because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it clear that vows and oaths shouldn't be made at all, because a simple yes or no should come forth from the mouth of a Christian with the honesty and integrity and the reality of being fulfilled as if it were a vow. That's why to say, yes, I'm going to do it, I'll be blamed if I don't do it. There's no point in the I'll be blamed. If I say, yes, I'm going to do it, my word as a believer in God should be as valid as a vow, without a vow being attached to it or an oath being attached to it. That's why it's kind of trite and flippant for us to say, by Jove, I'm going to do this, or by Jupiter, or whatever. I mean, actually, you're swearing by a pagan god when you do that. You don't need to say that. Just say, yes, I will do this. And as a believer in Christ, that should be as good as an oath in the world. Let me just read Jesus' words there in in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I guess Jesus didn't foresee Clairol and Grecian formula. (laughs) But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. And anything beyond that, these, is of evil. Pointless. You just put yourself in a bind. Your word should be good without an oath attached to it. In fact, I even hate to read this passage. To me, it's one of the most tragic stories of all Scripture. And and you know it. I mean, the folly of making a rash vow. And then after you made a rash vow, the further folly of carrying the thing out. You know, God wants you to fill out, fulfill your vows, but not if they're stupid. Let me read from Judges, the tragic story of Jephthah. Makes me cringe every time I read it. But Judges 11:29. Now the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Galilee, and from Mizpah of Galilee he went to the son on to the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hands, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them with great slaughter from Aror to the uh, entrance of Minnath, 20 cities, as far as abel Keramim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. It came about when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. Uh, you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And she said to her father, let this thing be done for me, let me alone uh, two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. And he said, go. So she went away for two months and left with with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. And it came about at the end of two months that she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man, and thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Some people try to say that what this passage really means is that she committed herself to be being a virgin for the rest of her lives. And you know, I'd like to say, oh, okay, well, that's not that bad. But that's not what it says here. It says he did as he had vowed before the Lord, and that was to offer her as a burnt offering. I mean, God does not demand human sacrifice. In fact, God loathes it and this guy, the guy was not only a fool to make the promise in the first place, but he was a fool to carry it out because there were ways by which you offer sacrifices and offerings in order to get yourself out of a vow, especially a stupid one like that. And so you can see that, you know, what comes out of our mouths is very, very important and needs to be thought through well ahead of time and needs to be out of the integrity of our hearts and not just a rash thing stated, which the world is full of. People all the time making rash statements. And then, of course, they're not able to carry them out, or if they do, it's it's greater folly than the statement was in the first place. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus said, don't make such an oath or a vow. You don't need to make such an oath or a vow. Just out of the integrity of your heart, do what you, your yes is your yes, your no is your no, and, and serve the Lord in the, in the power of His name. And you don't need to do all of these things. What is interesting about this passage, and we're out of time here, but in, at the end of uh, Numbers 30 there, well, no, not the end, the beginning, in verse 2, it says, if a man makes a vow, it doesn't say that a man should make a vow. It says if he happens to do that, if he makes a vow, then he must fulfill it. But it's not being required. That that same verse is the crux of all Old Testament teaching concerning vows and oaths. Because it says, if a man makes a vow, that is to do something, or takes an oath, that is to abstain from something, he shall not violate his word. He shall do all that proceeds out of his mouth, which behooves us to guard what we say. God is absolutely true to his word, and he wants us to be trustworthy too. Because we are his representatives. This, you and, and I, are the ones in whom people see God. We're we're the mirrors of Christ. So if our word's no good, what are people going to think about God? The same. The last verses of chapter 30 deal with women making vows. What is interesting about this is, is that it indicates that women played an active and personal role in the spiritual life in Israel. They weren't just passive observers with the men doing everything. They could make vows too. But because Israel was a patriarchal society, and because God had ordained the male head of the household to be the spiritual guide for the family, the the teaching is here that if a woman is under her father, she must make a vow only if it's acceptable to her father. Now, that only makes sense when you think about it. You can't have chaos in the home, people vowing this and vowing that and vowing something else that that creates a, a... broken down situation, or if she's married, that it be in accordance with the will of her husband. This is not talking about females being jammed into the ground, you're not important, your vows irrelevant. No, it's, it's talking about order in society is what it's talking about. The women could make vows, but it needed to be in accordance with the spiritual guidance of the father if she was living with her father, and with her husband if it was living with her husband. Because it goes on to say that if she's not living with her father and, and she's not married, or she's divorced or widowed or whatever, that if she makes a vow, it stands just as the vow as, as any man does, because she's not under anyone, any male authority, father or husband. And therefore, her vow stands just as any man's vow would stand. But let me read at the in closing today from um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word, or impulsive in thought, to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. We'll pick up chapter 31 next Sunday as Israel moves into battle against Midian.